Good morning. It's good to see you guys. Um, if this is your first time here, I want to personally welcome you and introduce myself. My name is Ricardo Stewart. I'm one of the pastors here. I usually do a bulk of the preaching, and we'll do such this morning. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 is where we'll be at this morning. If you don't have a Bible, raise your, your hand really high, and then one of our ushers will walk down your aisle and get you a copy of God's Word so that you can grow in a knowledge of Jesus and follow along with us. If you don't own a Bible, go ahead and keep the one we're handing out to you. Um, as you as you turn there, usually this is the time of the season where I start talking about football. And listen, I'm not going to get up here and talk about how ASU won last night. I'm not going to talk about how our defense struggled and gave up 55 points, but our offense gave up 68. That's not what I'm going to do today. We're not going to talk about how they're 2-0 and and undefeated and whatever. All right? Because we're going to talk about some other things today. So we started, as Greg said, the True Story Project. And so that means, for those of you, first, for those of you guys who are going, I have no idea what the True Story Project is, we started something as a church in which we're reading through the whole Bible as a whole church in the whole year. And we're calling it the True Story Project because it is the true story of the, word, of the world through the scriptures of Genesis to Revelation. So we're on a reading plan in which we're reading a few chapters a day um, throughout the scriptures for the whole year. And so if you want more information about that or resources, please go to the resource room immediately following the service, please, just so they can give you more of what we're doing and so that you can be caught up to speed. For the rest of us who knew what it was, um, last week, Monday, Labor Day, most of us not working. I know we did a good job at starting. We read those first three chapters of Genesis. We read the psalm. I know you guys have been reading every single day. I'm sure you've read before you came to church today. Um, and you're probably going to read later. No football, just reading the Bible. All right? And so, so if you, for some reason, fell behind, the three of you who did, right, um, catch up or start where we are today and then keep going. All right? So we can continue to read the scriptures together and so forth. It has been absolutely so far really interesting. You guys have been reading through Genesis. We've been reading through Genesis and there's some gnarly stories in Genesis. And I promise you this, they get more gnarly as the Bible goes on. Uh, a lot of weird stuff happening with Abraham's life. I mean, I, apparently his wife's his sister. I mean, it's great. All right? So keep reading the Bibles there. Also, today, something we need to make sure that we remember is today is the 15th anniversary of September 11th, uh, which is a, a day that, that many of us in this room, that we were alive during this, that we can say, you remember where you were 15 years ago. Every time, every time it comes around, it's like, you know where you were. And I was actually a sophomore in college at the time. Um, it was interesting talking to some of the band members. They were like, yeah, I was six. I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, you know, just... Just how young they were, but I was a sophomore in college. I remember we were working out, you know, still playing football at the time, um, and I got to the, 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 work, the, the gym that time because it was early in the morning, and someone's like, hey, you know, a plane crashed into the Twin Tires I just talked about on the radio, and I'm like, oh, it must be a terrorist. My buddy's like, why, why do you say things like that? I'm like, planes don't crash into buildings like that. And then moments later, they broke into the radio again, and, you know, they said this, you know, another, another plane, and our, I remember our strength coach canceled uh, workouts. We all went back to uh, our dorms or apartments and just watched that on TV again and again and again. And, and you guys have your own stories. You can remember exactly where you were. What was interesting that year for me was before that, the, the year before that in December, we had actually gone to Hawaii for a bowl game for football, and we got a chance to go to Pearl Harbor. And, like, listen to these soldiers talk to us about what happened at Pearl Harbor and hear how we were attacked as a country and, and so forth. And then I don't know if you can recall, but just before 9-11, um, that summer, the Pearl Harbor movie came out with, like, Ben Affleck and I think uh, one of those girls. <laughs> um, it was like, I can't, I can't think of the name. One of them. And, uh, and, you know, it was like a romantic movie. I didn't watch it. Um, so, uh, but it was like, what would that be like? 
if like our country like felt like that. And it was just months later than 9-11 hit. And so it was a very, very sad moment. Something we want to be able to remember, remember the families and people who are still, still uh, grieving over that, New York City, etc. So if you guys do me a favor, before we jump into God's word today, let's pray and uh, continue to ask God's blessing and favor and healing um, on that event. Father, we, um, we know that you were sovereign and you were good, and, and at the same time, Lord, there are a lot of things that happen in this world, Lord, that we just can't make sense of. Um, there are things that happen in our own lives, Lord, that we just can't make sense of. And God, is, even though it's been 15 years, Lord, we, we remember watching uh, the footage. We remember watching the lives, Lord, of people, Lord, trying to save themselves and the buildings and just the, the tragedy that it was, the trauma that it was. And Lord, we, we pray for your continued healing, your continued blessing. Father, we know that in that moment, Lord, um, even those of us in the room that weren't Christian, Lord, that weekend, many of us showed up to church for the first time. We were looking for something. And Lord, we know that your scriptures let us know the church is not the answer, but the church is made up of a people, Lord, who know who the answer is in Jesus. God, we ask, Lord, that you would be exalted in those families and and in their lives. You would be exalted in the lives of of us. You'd be exalted through the teaching of your word today, that you'd be exalted in the taking of communion and partaking, Lord, and fellowshipping with you and the bread and the wine. Father, we ask that all that we do and say, Lord, would be because of and from the name and love of Jesus Christ. It's the name we pray. Amen. So we have a video that we have that we're going to show. It's so sit tight. It's going to be about five minutes long, but this video sets up today's message and next week's message. So sit tight and direct your attention to the screen. The Bible, stuff we generally take as good advice. Don't murder, don't steal, honor your parents. The list goes on. And those are just the first 10. There are actually a total of 613 commands, all given to ancient Israel, found in the first five books of the Bible, which in Hebrew are called the Torah. Now, the word Torah is usually translated in English as the law because it has all of these laws in it. And as you read through them, you wonder, am I supposed to obey some of these, all of these? I mean, what's the purpose of the law. Well, that translation is kind of confusing because while the Torah has laws in it, the book itself is fundamentally a story about how God is creating new kinds of people who are fully able to love God and love others. And when Jesus taught about the Torah, he said that he was bringing that story to its fulfillment. So walk me through the story and how it's fulfilled. So the story begins with God creating humanity who rebels. And God chooses Abraham to bless all of the nations through his family, who end up in slavery down in Egypt, and so God rescues them. Then at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel, like an agreement. And all of the laws that Moses gives to Israel are the terms of that agreement. They're like a constitution. And so some of the laws, they're about rituals and customs that set Israel apart from the nations. Other laws are about social justice or morality. And by following these, Israel would show the other nations what God is like. Okay, so the rest of the Torah is just the complete list of laws that Moses gives Israel? Mm, No, the rest of the Torah just continues the story. And the 613 commands are only a selection from that original constitution. And even these have been broken up and placed at strategic points within the story. Now pay attention because you'll see a really clear pattern. Moses gives the first laws to Israel. Don't worship other gods, don't make idols. And then right after that, there's a story of Israel breaking those very laws. Yeah, they worship the golden calf. And so Moses gives some more laws. And then you get more stories of rebellion. Some more laws, rebellion again, some more laws, more rebellion, and you start to see the point. Right, no matter how many laws, they're just going to continue to rebel. 
So at the conclusion of the Torah story, Moses gives this final speech to Israel as they prepare to go into their new home. And he tells them, you guys, I know that you're not going to follow all of God's laws. You've proven to me that you're incapable. And Moses says the problem is that their hearts are hard and that they're going to need new transformed hearts if they're ever going to truly follow God's law. And he was right. I mean, the story goes on to recount Israel's total failure. They go into the land, they break all the laws. Right. Now, the next section of books in the Jewish tradition are the 15 books of the prophets, and they reflect back on the story. For example, Ezekiel, he said that if Israel was ever going to obey the law, God's spirit would have to transform their hard hearts into soft hearts. And Jeremiah said that's when obedience to God's commands wouldn't feel like a duty, but they would be written deep in their hearts. And Isaiah, he promised a future leader, Israel's Messiah, who will lead all of the people in obedience to the law. Now, in Jewish tradition, all of these books together are called the prophets, even the historical books, because they're continuing the story told from the perspective of the prophets. Okay, so we have the law and the prophets, and they're telling one connected story about God's desire to bless the whole world through a people, Israel, who it turns out needs a new heart. Yes, and Jesus saw himself as continuing that story. So he agreed with the law and the prophets when he taught that it's out of the human heart that come the most ugly parts of human nature. It's like the default setting of our hearts is opposed to God's law. But Jesus also said that he came to solve that problem and in his words, to fulfill the law. So what does he mean there to fulfill the law? Well, first he said that the demand of all of the laws in the Torah could be fulfilled by what he called the great command, that we are to love God and to love others. So that seems pretty easy. I mean, we all want to love. Well, we think we want to love. But Jesus showed how love is far more demanding than we realize. So he quotes the law, do not murder. And he says, yes, not killing someone is a very loving thing to do. But then he also says that when you treat someone with disrespect or when you nurse resentment against them, you're also violating God's moral ideal because you're not treating that person with love. And so Jesus said true love ought to extend even to our own enemies. So even though this command seems very simple, Jesus showed how our hearts are not currently equipped to fulfill even this basic command of God to love others. And that's kind of a downer. But where Israel failed, Jesus brought this story to its fulfillment. As Israel's Messiah, he fully loved God and others. And he showed all of the nations what God is truly like. He did this through his acts of compassion and mercy and ultimately by loving his enemies even unto death. And after his resurrection, he told his followers that he would send God's spirit to transform their hearts so that they could follow him and fulfill the purpose of the law, to love God and to love their neighbor. So this fulfills the story of the law and the prophets, or in the words of the Apostle Paul, the one who loves fulfills the law. So that, <clears throat> so that video kind of like sums up today's sermon and, and next week. So let's close our Bibles. We're going to pray. <laughs> we'll see you guys in two weeks. No, just joking. All right, so what we have is, the reason why we showed that is that gives us a picture of what is Jesus talking about here. So we are in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're just joining us, here's just a brief recap. We started off looking at this series saying, the Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus is, is grand, this is what it looks like to be moral, but it's Jesus saying the kingdom of God is here. And so men and women and children who trust in that king, who have entered through grace, exercising itself through faith, this is how you ought to live. It's the ethics of the king. 
And so week one, we begin to look at the characteristics of that kingdom, and we learned about the Beatitudes and the type of characteristics that, that show forth in the kingdom. It's being poor in spirit. It's those who are being persecuted because of righteousness. It's those who mourn, those who care, those who serve. And then last week, we, we had a guest speaker. Ken was in town who was very, very brilliant. I mean, that guy was, like, talking about stuff none of us had ever heard of before. He's, like, reaching back in the history, talking about John Locke. I'm like, is this an episode of Lost? What's, what's happening here, right? And so, so you had... Uh, Ken was here last week, and he talked about salt and light. And he gave this beautiful picture, literally, of what the Sermon on the Mount looked like, because it was the mount which Jesus preached the sermon from, and, and showed us that there's a city next to that mount. And then Jesus says, what we're like, we're like a city on a hill. And he goes, on that, on that hill, he told us, that if you're in Jerusalem, no matter where you are, you can see the top of that hill. So if someone on that hill would, would have a fire, everyone would be able to see it. And, and see it. And the only way you wouldn't see it is if someone put a bowl on it. And so when Jesus says that we are the light of the world, he goes, do you get the idea that we're supposed to, living out these characteristics, when we do that faithfully, that we become light to a world that's dark? And then he says there's salt. And he began to describe the type of salt that was in the land. And the salt would actually get deep into the soil. And the picture that he gave is somebody was playing basketball and sweating a lot with a baseball cap on. And then the sweat dried up and they would have salt on their forehead. He goes, that's the way the salt would look in the soil. And so the, the picture that we have is when followers of Jesus, by grace, working itself through faith, begin to live out the commands of the Lord collectively, that we become light to a world that's dark, and that we become salt, ultimately deep entrenched into culture, that we don't remove ourselves in such a way to say we're going to leave this world because we can't. But the kingdom has actually come into this world, as Jesus has said, um, that it's here, but not yet fully. The Spirit is here, the reign of God is here, but there's still injustice and darkness and sin, etc. And so we begin to look at the life of Christ. And so today, Jesus begins to show forth more of um, what it looks like to get at the heart of the law. Because if you were a part of the original audience at this moment, you're Jewish people. Um, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, was written to a Jewish audience. That if you were sitting at the base of the Sermon on the Mount, and you're hearing Jesus talk, and you've, hear, you've already heard what Jesus has done thus forth, you have not hear, heard him say anything about the law. And so there's a group of people who are saying, wait, wait, this can't be from God because he has not mentioned anything from the law. Another group of people are saying, this is great because it's a completely new teaching. And Jesus says, it's, it's neither me getting rid of the law or a new teaching. It's actually me fulfilling the law ultimately in his teaching and his life and his death and his resurrection. And so that's what we look at today. The two big words today is fulfill, how Jesus fulfills the law. And the second one is righteousness, which we're going to pack, um, look more at and more deeply even next week. And so if you're with me in chapter 5, let's begin to look at uh, Jesus' language here. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an, an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so the first thing Jesus says is, I want you to know this. I have not come to abolish or to do away with the law. Now, we just saw in the video that there was lots of things in the law. He goes, I have not at all come to abolish it. But what he says is, I, the law of the prophets, but I've come to fulfill it. So the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets represented the Bible to them, right? They didn't have the New Testament. Their Bible was the Old Testament. It was the books that we have in the Old Testament. And, in, and the law in itself, which means Torah or instruction, were those first five books. And then the prophets were commentaries on that, those books. And he says, that right there, the Bible as you know it, I see it as authority. I see it as God's word, and by no means am I coming to say the word does not matter anymore. He goes, but I've actually come 
to fulfill it. Now, here's what's interesting. Matthew is obsessed with this word, fulfill. And here's why I think. His audience are primary Jewish people. He's trying to show them again and again that Jesus is fulfillment of what God has been doing. That Jesus is the climax of the story in which God is writing throughout history. That ultimately he is the goal in which he is taking history. And so if you read with me to show what he's trying to, um, to prove that Jesus is a fulfillment, um, already before we even get to the Sermon on the Mount, he's used that word several times. In fact, look at this. Matthew chapter 1, he says this, She will bear a son, speaking of the Virgin Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took, pl- took place to, there's the word, fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. There's a fulfillment of saying this is some, everything he's quoting here comes from the prophets. He goes, here's what the prophet said. Go into chapter 2. And assembling the chief priests and scribes of, of the people, he acquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Ju- Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, uh, Israel. Right? Again, this is Jesus fulfilling what the prophet spoke about. Again in chapter 2. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now this is what after Jesus was born and Herod was after him, that they had to flee to Egypt. And he's saying this is something God had promised. Again, the prophets promised this and Jesus fulfilled it. 17, 217. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Again, Jeremiah speaking here. And he goes on here. A few more. For this is... He who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now he's speaking here of the one who was to speak in the wilderness, John the Baptist, that ultimately prepared the way for Jesus. Again, fulfilling what the prophets had said. Continues and says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he being Jesus, he withdrew to Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew was trying to get his audience to see all of what you've been looking for, all of what you've been trying to achieve, everything that you've been trying to accomplish is accomplished in Jesus Christ. That it's not just another prophet, that it's not just another wise sage, but it's God himself who has entered the world to bring salvation to his people and to establish his kingdom. And so he says this. Now, if you look at the very end of Luke's gospel, Luke says this about Jesus. Now, the context here is Jesus is already resurrected. He's still walking around the earth before he ascends to heaven. And he's talking to these guys on the road to Emmaus. They don't know it's Jesus. And Jesus is talking to them about himself, and they still can't figure it out. And so we pick up on the conversation. It says this. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus is there. 
They don't know it's Jesus. They're like, man, there was this man. He said he was God's son, and he died on the cross. And Jesus is like, oh, tell me more about this guy, right? And, and, then, he, and then he interprets them from the beginning of Scripture all the way to the end of Scripture, which was the Old Testament, about all the things pointing to himself, right? That probably wasn't a three-minute Bible study, right? Like, he started, like, hey, you guys got some time? Here we go. Genesis, right? And just walked all the way through pointing to himself. And so what we see in the scriptures is this whole kingdom of God and what it means to be a part of the kingdom, it goes through the person of Christ. And so when Matthew begins to say uh, this, he's saying he's been fulfilling this, he's been fulfilling this, he's been fulfilling this, and now we see Jesus going, I'm not getting rid of the Bible. I'm not getting rid of what God has said. I am God here, and I'm here to fulfill it. The, the, the word fulfill, um, it means to color in or to fill up, right, to complete. Now, some of you guys grew up around the same time I grew up. There was this dude on, on uh, TV named Bob Ross. You guys know Ross? So Bob Ross was a uh, white dude with a nice little fro, tight, tight fro. He, I, if I had a picture, I'd show you. He was, he was balling. So he was on PBS. And he would paint real calm, just he would just kind of paint a little bit, and he made it look really easy. In fact, he looked like he probably painted this picture that we have here, right? And he would start off, and he would start drawing some things, and eventually you would know what it's going to be, but it wasn't fully filled in. And the rest of the show, he would just kind of add, oh, then you add this color, then all you have to do is do this, and then all you, and it's like, come on, bro, like, you clearly are better than all of us. Look at that fro. And so he, he would finish the painting, and when he was done with the painting, you would actually know what it is. Now, here's what we need to understand of what Jesus is saying. In the Old Testament was the sketch of what God was doing. Jesus comes in and fulfills and brings to color, brings to life, and fills in all that was meant in the Old Testament. One, one guy said it this way. In the, gospel, in the gospel in the Old Testament was that of a bud, and the gospel in the New Testament is the flower. That it's the continuation of the story and the mission of God himself and how he's redeeming and restoring creation in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the Israelites knew that God was going to do something because he said it. They knew God was going to bring about redemption because he said it. They knew that there would be a kingdom because he said it. They had no idea it would be God himself. And the reason why they listened to the teachings of Jesus, they would say, there's authority, but they still couldn't see it. And Jesus is just before him saying, listen, all of what you've looked to in the law and Moses, I'm bringing the life. I've stepped in. I'm fulfilling it which would have been good news for him if they had eyes to see. Well, Jesus continues here as he tells them that he's the fulfillment of it. He's fulfilling it. Verse 18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it's accomplished. Now, an iota or a dot, well, these are the smallest letter in the alphabet. He, he's speaking hyperbole here saying, listen, heaven and earth, there will be a redemption and there will be a complete restoration. Until that happens, I will fulfill every single thing that the law pointed to. So what are those things? Well, part of that is when you begin to look in, in your Bible, you begin to see that Jesus fulfills the types and the shadows and the sacrifices and so forth. For instance, many of us started this reading plan, so you're, you're in Genesis. Um, and while you're, you're, you're in Genesis, you, you begin to see that there's Genesis 1, God's like, it's good, everything's great. Genesis 2, it's good, it's great. He goes, you know what? It ain't good for this man to be alone. He doesn't say it in that. My translation is a little different than yours. Uh, he says, it's not good for this man to be alone, so I make him a help, helper suitable for him. And so he creates Eve. They meet each other. He's like, what's up, girl? How you doing? That becomes his boo thing, and they get married. And so, so after that, um, things are good. We don't have interruption until Genesis chapter 3. 
And then Genesis chapter 3, Satan shows up in the form of a serpent, and he starts spitting game at Eve. Adam's not stopping it, and then she starts believing it, and all of a sudden we have, inj- some, that just went over half of you guys' head, spitting game. Like, oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't see that. <laughs> so, so Eve starts believing, and then now she acts in sin, Adam acts in sin, and now there's, there's injustice and chaos and evil and everything that we have that's corrupt in our culture. Well, then God gives these curses. First of all, God doesn't quit on them. He doesn't say, I started this, I gave you everything, now I'm out. He continues to pursue. But part of his pursuit was there's going to be judgment, there's curses. So he looks at the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed or, excuse me, your, your offspring and her seed or offspring. Now, at that very beginning, he says that there will be enmity, that you will strike his heel and he will crush your head. What is God doing there? That is the beginning of some prophecy. Because here's what you need to understand, if you don't know already, a woman biologically doesn't have a seed, right? 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 Sorry, the, the, the Bible Project doesn't have a video for that. We'll, we'll, we'll see next week if we can figure that one out. Bring a permission slip. All right, so there's, there's, there, it's beginning to show forth that there will be a virgin woman that will have a child. Ultimately, on the cross, what we see as it plays out, that the enemy tried to strike his heel on the cross, thinking he took Jesus out. But ultimately, it's through the death and the resurrection that God himself begins to crush the head of evil and one day will stamp out evil in our world. You begin to see that. But even in the Old Testament, when you begin to see the laws, the laws begin to display the doctrine of God, the beauty of his teaching that we see in Jesus' life and his teaching, the moral ethics that we see in Jesus' life and and his teaching. That when you begin to think about some of the ceremonial laws, these laws that they would have to do to make themselves clean before they can approach God, that we no longer have to do. Not that God doesn't want us to be clean, we just can't clean ourselves. So God does this on our behalf through the blood of Christ Jesus, that he cleanses us. It's what David spoke about in Psalm 51 when he says, wash me with hyssop and then I may be cleansed, then I may be whole, then I may be white as snow that I may approach the Lord. And then they had these, these sacrifices. They'd have to sacrifice for everything. I could not have made it in that day. If one of you had a paper cut right now and I saw the blood, ah, oh, I'm out, right? There's no way I'm watching the animal. Somebody asked me, would you ever want to see the slaughtering of an animal? No. Why would I pay for that? And I get everybody's different. Everyone's like, did you cut the umbilical cord of your child? No. We, by insurance, paid the doctors for that. <laughs> I didn't go to school for that. Like, no, I don't even want to be there, right? So, so that, that's just me, all right? Oh, just me. So when it comes to the sacrifices, they had to have sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice for intentional sins, sins that they knew they did, unintentional sins, sins they didn't even know that they did. It was a sacrifice, and even those sacrifices pointed to something serious. God was holy. And that ultimately there's punishment for our sin. And there needs to be atonement. And there was a temporary atoning of the animals. They didn't wash our sins, but they were a sign or a type of what was to come that we see the ultimate sacrifice. God's not done with the sacrifice. We just don't have to do those rituals anymore because there was a once and once for all sacrifice that happened through this true sacrificial lamb, who's Jesus Christ, who ultimately through his blood that the angel of death passes over us as we see in Exodus. There's a true passing over over our sins because of the work of Christ on the cross. As you can see that every single thing begins to point to him. But what Israel fell then, he becomes ultimately the hero. That he becomes the righteousness that God looks for. That he truly shows us what it looks like and how we love God and that we love our neighbor. And as you saw in the video, ultimately loving our enemies to the point of death. And that's how we enter in, by grace, unmerited favor, into this kingdom. Into this kingdom. And Jesus says, I fulfilled this. 
and I'm going to completely fulfill it. And there's not the smallest letter or a dot that's ever going to be not fulfilled until ultimately heaven and earth pass away that he's going to fulfill all things. Well, right now, if you're listening to this and you're, you're a Hebrew person, you're going, this, this, this sounds kind of good. I mean, th- th- this sounds like okay, but if you're a Pharisee and you're a scribe, you're going, no way. Because the way they related to the law was, and keeping the law is how you became righteous. And up until this point, Jesus had not said be righteous yet. And yet when you see in the scriptures, God is saying, be righteous, be righteous, be righteous, be righteous. And Jesus speaks again here, verse 20. For I have, to, for I tell you, or excuse me, sorry, we just can't skip verse 19, guys. I know you guys wanted to. We're going to do 19 first. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, of the least of these, excuse me, a least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Here's what Jesus is saying. You cannot relax on obedience. Like we love, and I love, the doctrine of justification. Like we talked through Galatians probably too long. Um, and all we talked about was how you were made right before God. All you have to do is accept his acceptance of you. It's a one-time act in which you were justified by the work of Jesus Christ. And he forgives you of your sins, past, present, and future. But that is a part of it. That's a part of the invitation and relationship with God. And when you're in relationship with anyone, it demands affections and actions. So then when we get invited into a relationship with God or a part of mission with God, there's a way we ought to live. There's a way that we express that life and love. Anybody in this room that's married to somebody, anybody in this room that's dating somebody, anybody in this room that loves somebody knows there's actions in there. And those people don't want you just to check off the list. They don't want you, they don't, they don't, I love you, why? Because look at check one, I did this, check two, I did, like right? It's like no, nobody wants to be checked off the list, they want to be loved. And part of that is action. Jesus says this, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Like, if you love me, you obey. And what he's saying is here is I'm not trying to relax at all on what the law said. And he says that you, the, the greatest of these and the least of these. Now, what Jesus is talking about in Jewish tradition that was known and taught by their rabbis that there were great commandments, like the ones that were weightier, and there were ones that were lesser. Now, later in Matthew, at the end of this gospel in chapter 23, Jesus begins to talk to people and actually address them and how they've separated the two and, and either chose one over the other. He's saying both have to be taught. So obedience is required. Hear me. I'm not saying obedience is required for entrance into the kingdom. That is faith, ultimately believing in God. That's how we enter the kingdom. Obedience is required on how we live in the kingdom. Obedience is not what makes us right before God. Jesus is what makes us right before God. But if we are truly in Christ, obedience flows from right relationship. That what Jesus has been talking about so far in the Sermon on the Mount, and he will continue to say, there's a kingdom ethic. We can't be light and we can't be salt to a culture around us if we don't obey. And then the obedience um, is raised really high. Now, again, if you are sitting listening to this, there are two people that you know, two types of people that are those people that you go, they're the ones who obey well. Thank you. And whoever you said that to, whoever you said that to, God bless them too. Um, 68 to 55. I'm still thinking about that game last night. All right. So here's what we have. Here's what we have. So Jesus, there we go. I'm back. The Bible. So what what you have here is there's two types of people that, that were like the ideal people who modeled righteousness. Like modeled it. 
In fact, it was a, it was a phrase that would be said in their culture that if, if two people are going to get into heaven, one's going to be a Pharisee and the other one's going to be a scribe. Now, the scribes were the people of the day who studied the scripture left and right. They memorized the scripture. They knew everything by, um, by heart in the Old Testament. And then you had the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were religious do-gooders. They wanted to do what God said. They're a little pompous, but they wanted to do what God said. In fact, they would go so far as to if God made a law, like thou shalt not be drunk, um, and what they would say is put something around that, like don't ever drink, don't ever look at alcohol, don't be with people who have alcohol, die, right? There's, there's like, they, they would have a fence around a fence around a fence, which became legalism, legalism. And many of us grew up in that. And you've had pastors and, and good pastors who wanted to be well-intentioned, but they put so many extra burdens on God's law that weighed us down. And people in Jesus, they experience that. It's why Jesus says, take upon me, come to me. My burden is easy and my yoke is light. The yoke he was talking about was the picture is that you would put yoke on oxen in order for them to do the farming. And if you had a bigger ox or a smaller ox, like you would want them to be equal so they could do an equal amount of work. Now, the yoke was also a metaphor for teaching. And they were saying the yoke of the Pharisees, it's too heavy because we can't attain it. The Pharisees gave the illusion that you can have righteousness. Because they had all their traditions to what God said, and they added to it, and they felt confident that we were living it. And we all have people in our life that we look to like they're doing it. They're the holy ones, right? Don't you have those people who are like, they are so much better than me. Like if God came back right now, he would move me out the side and go, you're the one I've been looking for. I need some help, right? <laughs> right? And if you don't know that person, you think you're the person, which how dare you, right? <laughs> you're like, are they talking about me? Are they talking about <laughs> Right? No. Like, so here's what Jesus says. It's the Pharisees and the scribes that they're already thinking about. And they're thinking, okay, righteousness, righteousness, if you fulfill the law, and now we have to be righteous. Here's what he says, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You hear that, and you're like, I quit. You mean I have to go further than those guys? But let's remember what we talked about in week one and week two. The kingdom that God begins to talk about here, his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Remember, the way up is actually the way down. Winning is actually losing. You want to be in the front, then start in the back. And when Jesus establishes his kingdom, and, and God says, okay, you get to pick your, your kingdom team to start this kingdom transformation. We talked about this. And he, and, and he picks people that nobody else would pick, right? First pick in the draft, fisherman. Second pick, fisherman. Third pick, fisherman, right? Worst fantasy draft team ever, Jesus. What are you doing? Quit picking kickers, right? <laughs> His kingdom is upside down. Even when he starts the Beatitudes, he says, here are the truly happy people, those who are poor in spirit. Here are the people who are going to receive the world, those who are meek and weep over it. Here are the people who will find life, those who actually give their life to serve for justice for others. But everything's upside down. So when he says your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes, he's not talking about doing more. You know, Jesus doesn't come and give more laws. Everything that Jesus comes, he goes, this is nothing new. This is bringing clarification that, to that that's already been said. In fact, that's next week's message. When Jesus says what many of us have heard, you've heard it said, but I tell you this. You've heard it said, he quotes the law, but I tell you this. He's not changing it. He's saying further is not by doing more, further exceeding by actually going deeper. The Pharisees were all about the externals, where Jesus was all about the internals. The kingdom of God is not about what you can do to earn your righteousness. The kingdom of God is about ultimately what God has done and given you righteousness. 
He's saying this is far deeper than you can even imagine. The fact that he's already fulfilled it, the fact that he's welcoming us into it, and he's calling us to this sort of obedience, the obedience that he's calling to is something that's real. And later what we'll see in Matthew in chapter 23, he actually goes after the Pharisees and the scribes. You know why? Because they weren't doing the law. They were trying to do all the moral things and all the right things, but they didn't do the good things. Meaning when you begin to look at God's law, many of us think it's only morality. It's only, you know, don't have sex before you're married, don't get drunk, and that's what God, God's all about that. He's just like, all right, you didn't do it, you didn't do it, you're good, right? But as we read into the Bible, what you're going to see is it's a lot of the way that we treat the poor. It's a lot of the way that we treat the stranger. It really is. The more you look at it, you go, these are some jacked up people in whom God loves, and he's saying part of your issue is you don't love people. You don't love people. You think about yourself. You look after number one. That, that when you begin to read the prophets, you'll see things like in Amos when he begins to rail them for their religious duties without their heart worshiping the Lord. Or you'll read Isaiah 58 when he says, you want to fast? Here's what a fast looks like. You're fasting and telling everybody, look, I'm fasting because I love God. How about the true fast that looks like this, that you care for your neighbor, that you welcome in the homeless, that you feed the hungry. Like that's the type of fast that I'm looking for. That when you actually begin to, to look at Malachi, Malachi is like the worst. In chapter 1, right off the get, he goes, hey, all those people that are doing religious duties, the priests are doing religious duties, all the people are showing up to church, they're showing up to worship service, but their hearts are so far from me. He goes, I wish somebody would close the door. Put a sign on that says, we quit. We're done. It was never from the heart. Because I wish somebody would just do that. Or, as many of us read this week, Sodom and Gomorrah. You read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you ask any Christian that's read that story, hey, why did God take them out? Why was there judgment? We will probably say because of the, sex, the sexual morality. And one particular, one particular sin in sexual morality we'll go after. But if you read the rest of the scriptures and you see what the prophet's interpretation on it, read, when you get a chance, go, go read Ezekiel chapter 16. You know what it says? Here's what I have against you. Here's what Sodom did. The rich got richer and the poor got poorer. Does it remind you of people? That, that you had a prosperous life and you didn't share with anybody. That's why he said I brought destruction. The, the scriptures are replete with that. That as we talked about last week, righteousness is moral living. It's nothing less than that. But there's a justice component that we cannot separate. So when he says I fulfill the law, he's saying I've done something on your behalf and I'm calling you to something far deeper, a life that looks like and follows Jesus into loving God and pouring yourselves out for the people around you. And that's what he calls us to. He gets, it's got to exceed the Pharisees and the scribes because guess what? They're not doing it. Now, for us to understand this righteousness, and we'll, we'll, we'll build on more to, um, next week, is we have to understand the difference between the way we approach righteousness um, in our Christian teaching. And a church like ours that teaches doctrine a lot, oftentimes we think of righteousness on one hand. And the righteousness is what is called imputed righteousness, which is just a word that, um, that nobody usually uses. Um, and so... <laughs> Imputed righteousness is that we don't have righteousness of our own. The Bible lets us know that no one is righteous, no, not one, yet God requires righteousness. So Jesus lives a life that we should have lived and we didn't, and he offers up his righteousness to the Father on our behalf. And so think of it this way. Those of you who live in Tempe or have lived in Tempe or lived anywhere, you went to go get that apartment sometime, right? You want to rent an apartment, and you wanted the nice one. You wanted the dope one, like the really nice one with the nice pool and so forth. Good-looking guys, good-looking girls. And uh, Mark Taylor apartment. And... Uh, <laughs> And you went in and you said, okay, they're like, hey, we ran your credit. You can't live here, <laughs> right? And what has to happen is if you can go get a parent or somebody else who has better credit, then we can get you in. 
Now, what they're saying is, we, we're not going to accept you by looking at your credit. It ain't good. Um, we're going to accept you by looking at somebody else's credit. The imputed righteousness is that Jesus puts his credit on us. And so God treats us, loves us as if we were Christ, and it re- relates to us as if we were Christ's record, his righteousness. That's imputed righteousness, beautiful truth. The righteousness that we see here and throughout the Sermon on the Mount is not a righteousness of imputation of just saying, this is what Christ did on our behalf. This is a righteousness in which we live. Meaning, you have to do something. That when he calls you to righteousness, it's morality and justice. That it's on one hand living and obeying Jesus and um, in the sins of commission, and also in the sins of omission. That this righteousness is that of transformation. And it is not as the Pharisees said, or the scribes would do from the outside in, as if doing these things would make us righteous, but it's from the inside out. And when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill this, well, we know the only way we can live righteousness from the inside out is because this is something that God promised in the prophets. That, that we think this is all new teaching. Jesus, God promised this years ago. That this, this sort of life that we would live from the inside out. In fact, here's the context. God's people find themselves sinning against God, sinning against God, and God sent them into exile. That's during the time of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and so forth. And he sent prophets to speak to them. One of those, two of those prophets at least were, we had Daniel, you had Ezekiel, and you had Jeremiah. And God talked about how he would cure them of their idolatry and eventually bring them back into the land, and then he would do something. That the law that he came down from the mountain and that he gave to Moses, that it wouldn't be something that would be written on stones, but it would be something that would be written in our hearts. So here's how Jeremiah says it in chapter 31. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That God is saying from the inside out. Ezekiel goes as far to show us that it's the Spirit's work within us that God will do, fulfilling it in Christ and Christ sending his Spirit. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. What he's saying here is it's not about us doing more or using the law to make us righteous. It's about Jesus fulfilling the law, us coming to Christ, receiving his spirit, and now giving us a new motivation from the inside to be able to obey and follow Jesus that would show itself in loving God and pouring ourselves out for our neighbor. That pouring ourselves out for the people around us. Pouring ourselves out for the people that don't look like us. Pouring ourselves out for our enemy. Pouring ourselves out in ways that shows itself in love and marriage, that love in relationships, that love ultimately in our community, in which Jesus says this was at the very heart of the law, and the only way we live this out is by looking to Jesus and being filled by the Spirit, not from the external to the internal, but from the internal that expresses itself in the external. Amen? To follow Jesus truly means to obey him. This is something we receive by his grace to know him, and it's something that is empowered by his grace and his spirit to be obedient children in a way that brings freedom, life, and love that's promised as we live into the kingdom of God. But it's an upside-down kingdom. So the best way to think about it is, as we begin to practice his righteousness, don't think it's going to be natural. One of the better illustrations I've heard is, if this kingdom is truly upside-down, you've got to think about it as we live out the life and love that God has for us. It's supposed to feel a little awkward because it's a new kingdom, the kingdom of this world. It's like if we went to another country where people drove on the other side of the street, walked on the other side of the street, even the steering wheel was on the other side of the car. 
that it would take some time getting used to for a while until it became normal. So what we need to do in the name of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, is practice the righteousness that we have in Jesus and the righteousness that the Spirit has written in our hearts. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the life and love that you have given us. We thank you for the call on even every one of our lives to you first and foremost, to experience right relationship with you and the Father and the Spirit. Father, we thank you that you have called us, Lord, to, to not only love you, but to express your love and the relationships you've given us and the community that you've given us in this church and the community that you've given us outside of this church. So, Father, we pray that you would begin to and continue to show us, Lord, how to love the other. God, how to pour ourselves out as we look at the law that you have not gotten rid of and that we begin to see, Lord, the morality that you've called us to and the justice that you've called us to, the way in which we live as your people that the world may know you. God, that we would be able to exalt the name of Christ in all that we do and say and think. God, help us to be truly light and the truly salt that people may glorify you, not us and not this church, because of the way that we serve them and ultimately because of the way we love you and even more so because you loved us. God, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.